Welcome to Season 2 of History, Politics, and Beer, the podcast that examines contemporary issues through the lens of history. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice-cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Hey, welcome everybody to Season 2 of History, Politics, and Beer. I hope you have your graham crackers, juice boxes, and carpet squares all set up. Uh, to take a listen, um, we are coming at you from the Gettysburg battlefield for four podcasts here. We're going to explore slavery, its role in the Civil War, and we are going to ex- explore post-Civil War and the legacy of the Civil War, Reconstruction, the whole way up into the 20th century. And we're going to do that over four podcasts. Uh, sitting across from me, as always, is Mr. Jeff Hudson. Uh, Jeff, what do you think about today? We're sitting here in the battlefield at Gettysburg on a beautiful Sunday. Yeah, it's just gorgeous out here and uh, as some of our listeners uh, will know how pretty who have visited the battlefield just how pretty it is a terrible place to have uh, the the battle of the Civil War that cost the most casualties the battle in American history single battle that cost the most American uh, casualties uh, and over the course of three days from July 1st to July 3rd really uh, the fate of the nation was settled here. And so in this, uh, Gettysburg in some ways is the penultimate uh, event, the Battle of the Civil War. And the Civil War is the single most important event in forming modern America. So it's a great place to talk about uh, American history. I can't think of a better one. Now, the Civil War started in uh, on, uh, I believe, April 12th, 1861, when the Union Fort Sumner was bombed, uh, bombarded in Charleston Harbor. Uh, there were troops, uh, Lincoln called out the troops, the actual secession of the of many of the Confederate states had, had already happened. Uh, the few remaining states seceded after he called up the troops. And we were at war. And the pattern of the war was set by the fact that it was the southern states in rebellion. And they wanted to leave the Union, uh, the the Northern, uh, the, the Union itself, um, wanted to preserve itself. And it to do that, it, it would be necessary to invade the states right, so we have in two, the South. We're going to have two, we're going to have two separate ideas of how this war is going to be fought based on whether you're in the North or the South. Both areas are going to need to um, have different philosophies of combat. And I think that you we're going to bring up some of those different philosophies, the difference between the Northern philosophy and the Southern philosophy, and also some how the war is divided between the East and the West. Right. And yeah, the, the, the North is, is forced uh, by the facts of the war uh, to compel the South back into the Union. And so a lot of the war, especially in the East, is invasions designed to get at the uh, southern capital, which is Richmond, which is not very far. No, it's not from, at all. from Washington. Uh, but the the Union is inept at doing that. Although they have a well organized army, eventually, after McClellan gets a hold of it, the Army of the Potomac is a good fighting unit. They they suffer poor leadership uh, and, and they terrible defeats at Fredericksburg and later at Chancellorsville. And this is basically due to the fact that. Uh, the generals in charge of the Army of Potomac are out by Robert E. Lee. 
And Robert E. Lee is also fighting a defensive war during these, during Fredericksburg and during Chancellorsville. Now, he was notably less successful in his invasions of the North. The first invasion of the Lee's invasion of the North ended in Maryland. He didn't even get to the Mason Dixon line right. at Antietam. And the second one would end here at Gettysburg. Right. Um, which brings us, we're going to do a little bit of uh, each day of the battles uh, as we move through these podcasts. Um, day one is July 1st, but we really have to go to June 30th, 1863, when Buford, a general uh, from the north, ends up in Gettysburg. He doesn't have orders to defend the town, but he's a cavalryman. He sees the lay of the land and realizes that he needs to protect Gettysburg, and he's going to take the high ground outside of the city. Um, which really you're stretching to call Gettysburg a city, but outside of town limits. On July 1st, he is going to be attacked. Um, this is more than a skirmish, uh, but it's an important setting up point for the main two days of the battle on July 2nd and 3rd because uh, Buford is going to hold ground and then eventually be pushed back through the town, and he's going to set up on um, high ground on the other side of the city or the town up on Cemetery Ridge, uh, which is even better ground than he had on the beginning of the day. And it's because he was able to slow up the Confederate advance that's going to allow Union reinforcements to take the high ground and plant themselves uh, there. So the first day is a little bit of a skirmish. Uh, The main days of the battle are going to be July 2nd and 3rd. And what really sets up this July 2nd is third is what Buford does on day one. And he sets the North up in a greatly defensive position. Now Lee has a decision to make. Does he leave the arm? Does he leave and retreat? Uh, or does he attack? And by 1863, um, the army of Northern Virginia has been more successful than losing, if that makes sense. And if he sets his mind to it, certainly they can win at Gettysburg. And he digs in and we're going to get uh, day two and day three, which we'll cover in later podcasts. Really, the meat and potatoes of this podcast, though, Jeff, is about the cause of the Civil War. Uh, And I want maybe you want to go into a little bit of some of the causes and uh, and springboard us into our discussion on slavery. Well, yeah. uh, And there's, you know, people will discuss the so-called causes of the Civil War. But there, it's a civil war. The civil war, as it occurred, is impossible to imagine without one factor, and that factor is the existence of African slavery in part of the nation. And uh, we need to know the history of that and how of an important of an institution. Uh, that was and how it became that way to to really understand the Civil War. Now, the American colonies um, were, people might know that the English came later to the New World than the Spanish did, and English were in, you know, in hope of finding golden cities and stuff. Turned out there weren't a lot of those. Especially in Virginia. In Virginia, Massachusetts. At what what there was is land that could be cleared for various kinds of farming, initially tobacco, and the American colonies uh, always used unpaid labor. There's you know three basic factors of production, and that's uh, capital investment. There's uh, labor, and there's natural resources, 
And it's always good to have a free source of labor. And the initial source of that was indentured servants. And these were people that, in general, paid for their passage to the new world by promising four to seven years of uh, unpaid labor, working for room and board, at which time they would be freed. And uh, a lot of uh, white Americans, uh, Englishmen, came to... Uh, America this way. In fact, the first Africans uh, that were brought to North America were captured from the Spanish and uh, introduced into Virginia as indentured servants. Right. And they're indentured servants, not slaves, because they're Christians. I was against the law to enslave Christians, and these Africans that were traded in Jamestown in 1619 were Christians, so they were considered servants. Um, The Jamestown and the Chesapeake colonies are going to find their wealth in the soil, and the soil is going to provide tobacco, and tobacco is going to provide money. Um, when the tobacco plantations are up and running, they're going to be exporting up to 60,000 pounds of tobacco each year to Great Britain. Now, in the New England colonies, we are settling for different reasons. We're settling for religious freedom. You all know the story of the pilgrims. And they are bringing over whole family units, the ground is rocky. It's not suited for plant, the plantation economy. The new, the Chesapeake colonies and the southern colonies are. And as Jeff said, there needs to be a labor force. Of course, there's not enough labor there in the colonies themselves. So the idea or the concept of indentured servitude is used. And as Jeff mentioned, these are contracts for four to seven years. Uh, plantation owners were rewarded for bringing over indentured servants. There's something called the head right system. For every indentured servant you brought over, you got 50 acres of land. After four to seven years, the indentured servant got his freedom dues, uh, which was land and sometimes even a firearm. Um, And this system was working well for the plantations. Um, You had a labor system. The labor system was rather stable. uh, Money was being made. By 1640, uh, whites and blacks are going to start being seen differently. You could be white, you could be black, and you could be an indentured servant. But by 1640, we can start looking at the historical record, and we can see that court records, a man by the name of John Punch is going to be mentioned. Uh, John Punch and two of his uh, indentured servant friends are going to try to escape. And when they escape, they are captured. They are brought before, I believe this is in Virginia, they're brought before a Virginia court. The two white indentured servants are simply given additional years into their servitude. John Punch, the only black, was made a servant for the rest of his life. And this is the time where we can start seeing a legal difference between white and black, that a white indentured servant is going to be viewed differently. And this is sort of the beginning of race-based slavery as the Chesapeake colonies become healthier, as life expectancy becomes longer, and as indentured servitude becomes less and less tenable, we now have an alternate labor force, and that is going to be race-based slavery. Right. And a lot of people uh, probably don't know that at one point in our history, uh, freed black people could own black slaves. Yes. But as thing as slavery becomes more and more simply racial based this is going to be less common and the prejudice against uh black people is going to become even more pronounced now initially uh other than indentured servitude uh in the carolinas the, they tried native americans to use native americans to slavery and and 
they even so sold some of these slaves as exports. But again, uh, for it was for one thing, it was much easier for a Native American to skip out. They knew how to survive in that land. They might have relatives nearby. It wasn't a great source of labor for the. There's other reasons why. Well, when they run away, they know the land. Yeah, they they take they, off. You're not going to find no, you know, uh, a Native American and, and bring them back. And and so there there came this this demand for uh, more black slaves. And initially, that was uh, it was very expensive. Most uh, African slaves that were bought to uh, America came from the West Indies. And one of the things that happened is slaveholders from Barbados looking for a uh, market for their product uh, set up a town called Charlestown. And it was one of the earliest entry points for African slaves. And it finally grew into the largest slave trading port in the United States. And not incidentally, this was the place where the Civil War began. And slaves entered the, the 13 colonies. And uh, slavery is practiced in different forms in all 13 colonies. It recognized legal status of slaves in Massachusetts was 1641, 1650 Connecticut, 1663 Maryland, 1664 New York and New Jersey, 1661 Virginia. So we're getting recognized legal status of slavery. If you notice in 1641, that's Massachusetts. That's only one year after John Punch uh, is given a life sentence for trying to escape indentured servitude. So we really see this switching from indentured servitude to a race-based system. One of the big moments in history that uh, is sort of a turning point is Bacon's, Rebel- Bacon's Rebellion in 1676. Nathaniel Bacon uh, was a wealthy man, uh, certainly not an indentured servant, but he becomes a leader of this band of a former indentured servants who were living in the Jamestown or actually outside the Jamestown colony. Well, they were in the colony, but they were outside of Jamestown. Uh, they were former indentured servants. Because of freedom dues, they were given land, but their land wasn't very good. And they were rubbing up against the Native American population, and there were fights back and forth. The governor, uh, Governor Berkeley, uh, refused to defend these former indentured servants because Governor Barkley was making, or Berkeley, I'm sorry, was making money uh, from fur trade. Uh, the Nathan uh, Bacon, Nathaniel Bacon, and the indentureds uh, take matters into their own hands. They take revenge on the Native Americans. Uh, basically, if you're a Native American, we're going to kill you. Uh, those who are guilty are dead. Those who are innocent are dead. And then they turn their rage into Jamestown. They go into Jamestown. They burn the city. Um, and this is a rebellion of indentured servants. Eventually, the rebellion is put down. Uh, Bacon dies of disease. But this is something that's going to continue happening. If you have indentured servants who are only going to be indentured for four to seven years, they have to be free and they're going to need land and they're going to want their fair share. Um, You're going to have more of these problems. How can we solve this problem? Ding, 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 race-based slavery. If you're a slave and you, if you're black, you're a slave. How do you know if you're a slave? If your mother was a slave. So we get race-based slavery that's based on the condition of the motherhood. This keeps your labor force controlled. It keeps your labor force never becoming free. And we avoid labor unrest. Yeah. And, and so black slavery uh, does indeed uh, happen and uh, spread throughout the colonies. Now, 
There is, as you would expect. I mean, there are people that object to this practice. And the earliest uh, formal objection I could find is in 1688, uh, four German Quakers uh, in Germantown, a town outside of Philadelphia, wrote a petition against the use of slaves by the English colonists in the nearby countryside. And they presented the petition to their local Quaker meeting. Those of you familiar with uh, history We'll know that Quakers were traditionally opposed to slavery and become an important force in finally ending it in the English Empire. So uh, the meeting passed the petition up to the chain of authority to the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, and they ignored it for 150 years. <laughs> but it's interesting to note that that original petition, uh, 1688, by the German Quakers, was based on a Declaration of Universal Human Rights. And we're going to be talking about this idea of universal human rights as a product of the European Enlightenment. There are philosophers over in Europe at this time who are advocating rights merely because you are a human being, you are entitled to certain things. So the noose is tightening here. Um, Indentured servitude is disappearing. John Punch gives us the idea that being black matters as opposed to being white. Um, states are recognizing the legal status of slavery. Uh, 1662, as I mentioned, Virginia law said that the condition of the child follows the condition of the mother. So if your mom's a slave, you're a slave. Now through natural reproduction, your slave population can grow. Uh, Bacon's Rebellion is 1676. As Hudson just mentioned, the Quakers produced the first anti-slavery resolution. But in the 1690s, it's now illegal in many states uh, that if you're a free slave, you have to leave that state within six months. If you don't leave, you're back into slavery. Uh, And also to leave, your master must pay your way to leave. This is a big incentive not to free your slaves because you don't have the money to do so. So by 1700, um, slavery is becoming the norm in Southern colonies. 1694, we see the first rice plantations are introduced into South Carolina. Uh, Many people don't know that there was a rice kingdom before there was a cotton kingdom. And rice and tobacco are going to be the cash crops that are being brought out of the South. In 1712, South Carolina makes it illegal to hire for slaves to hire themselves out. Uh, So they can't earn wages on their own. Again, the tightening of the noose here to keep slaves uneducated, to keep slaves without money, to keep slaves from doing anything entrepreneurial. They can't do anything entrepreneurial. You don't want them allowed to. You don't want them to be free. No. And if they are free, the law already makes it that you have to leave the colony within six months. which gives us in 1739 the largest slave revolt ever at Stone, in Stone, the Stono Rebellion in South Carolina. Uh, Eighty people were killed. Um, the slaves attempt to get to Florida where there was free territory. Um, they are captured and they are executed. So by 1700s, slavery is what it is in America. It's not the slavery we know in the Civil War, pre-Civil War. This, it's almost like slavery 1.0 and slavery 2.0. Slavery 1.0 is tobacco and rice. Right. Slave 2.0 is going to be cotton, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. There's going to be a changeover. But before we get to that changeover, we have to fight a revolutionary war. We have to deal with this issue of slavery. We have to look at the Declaration of Independence and then deal with the issue in a pragmatic way in the Constitution. Right. And, and we've already mentioned that the idea of universal human rights 
was uh, current at this time. Uh, again, coming from Europe and one of the greatest readers of the philosophers of the European Enlightenment happened to be Thomas Jefferson. And he is the guy that the delegates uh, to the, um, what is that, the Second Continental Congress that they decide on the uh, writing a Declaration of Independence. And we know that it contains a famous statement on human rights. It is, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this is a, the great aspiration of the country. This is not a blueprint for government it is the principles American government will be founded on. And of course, many historians and and probably most Americans know there's a little irony in a slaveholder writing these words down. And Jefferson was aware of that. It yes. was a lot of people think that the people who wrote this weren't aware of the hypocrisy of their world. Jefferson was very aware of the hypocrisy. Washington was aware of the hypocrisy. Um, but they knew no other way. Right. Jefferson says at one point about slavery, but as it is, we have the wolf by the ear and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is on one scale and self-preservation in the other. And Jefferson never frees his slaves. Uh, he has at least one child, Eston Hemings, and probably several four others, I believe, with Sally Hemings, who is one of his slaves, all those uh, children are granted their freedom. So Jefferson was aware of the hypocrisy and it seemed unable to do anything about it. Washington uh, was a little more forward thinking. And, 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 you know, when we talk about these people having slaves, uh, some modern people, well, they had slaves. They can't believe in any of it. But I think you have to consider growing up in a system where slavery is the norm, it's accepted, it's a great source of wealth, and it's very hard to put us back, you know, put yourself back into that. But if you grew up as that as the norm, you might be way more accepting of that than, than you think it is. You would be accepting of it. You it's would just, way, way more than— Just than, the way it is. Yeah. Uh, but, anyhow, Washington and, and uh, his, his wife, Mary— were um, recognized the humanity of slaves in one basic way. They didn't want to trade um, uh, slaves who and break up families that didn't want to be uh, broken up. And so that is one thing. I think seeing the humanity leads to something that Washington uh, does in his will, and that is he frees the slaves that he owns at Mount Vernon. They're, they think there's about 317 slaves there, 123 of those were owned by George Washington, and he stipulated in his will that they were to be freed upon his wife's death because they would become his wife's property after he died. And these slaves were indeed free. Here's another thing I think that was interesting about Washington. He stipulated in his will that elderly slaves or those who were too sick to work were to be supported throughout their lives by his estate. He also th stipulated that children without parents are those whose families were unable to see to their education were to be bound out to masters and mistresses who would teach them reading, writing, and a useful trade until they were freed at age 25. So 
there, there was provisions in the will that they could be successful free people. Right. Yeah. And Washington was obviously the first president of the United States. So everything Washington did when he was president was a precedent. Uh, he was setting precedent for everything, that for other people to follow. And I don't think Washington ever says it outright, but you have to think that what he did in 1799, he was setting a precedent. I think he expected other planters to follow suit, and this was a way to eradicate slavery. Um, those people who owned slaves weren't necessarily going to be punished monetarily, but upon your death, you free your slaves. His death in 1799 is problematic because he doesn't know of the cotton gin yet and the great wealth that cotton is going to provide. Um, and that is going to be a problem for him. Um, Washington also is a hard man to work for. And if you look back, some of some of Washington's uh, contemporaries said that he could be a harsh master at some point. But later in his life, I think he saw where slavery was going. Slavery was dying. Slavery was not going to be around much longer. Financially, it didn't make much sense. And he was paving the way for it. But what he does is actually going to be made illegal eventually. States start making it illegal for masters to have deathbed confessionals and want to free their slaves upon their death. Again, you don't want these people walking around free. Remember what happened with the indentured servants. Remember what happened with Bacon's Rebellion. We need a controlled labor force. And which brings us, I think, to the Constitution and how we rectify this this great oratory of uh, writing of Jefferson with all men are created equal with, well, let's just free the slaves then in the Constitution and be heroes. Well, that that's that's right. And, you know, the framers that sat down in Philadelphia in 1787 to hash out an actual government, they had to face the reality that part of the new country they formed was dependent on slave labor. And also, let's not just look at the South. There are many people in the North from, you know, uh, people in New England who were Ship owners and captains, they were benefiting from the whole black slavery. This is, not a, this is not a regional sin. This is a national sin or ours. Well, the people, there are a lot of other people profiting right. by this. But um, there's also the reality that most people at this time are small farmers. And in both sections of the country, they don't own slaves. But the small farmers aren't forming the government. No. That's not who is in Philadelphia. And uh, politics is sometimes referred to as the art of the possible. And the framers include several provisions uh, in the Constitution to mollify the South. First of all, they say the African slave trade can continue for 20 years. And that doesn't mean slavery can continue. They didn't put a limit on slavery. That meant the importation of slaves from Africa, which at this time everybody knew that was a very cruel uh, thing, the, the slave trade. Right. And uh, it was that even part of that was supposed to be the Declaration of Independence uh, about the evils of the international slave trade, but was edited out. Well, that's that's true too. There was other things in there that were, again, to mollify the South, right. and we'll we'll see that effort to mollify the South throughout the early history of the United States. Probably uh, one of the most egregious things they put in there from a modern perspective is the Three Fifths Compromise. The South was always afraid that the North, with its superior population and superior economic power, would have superior political power, and eventually. Uh, put an end to slavery. 
And in order for the South to have more voting power in the House of Representatives, they were allowed to count their slaves who were not considered citizens and had no voting rights and no other kinds of uh, uh, very few other institutional rights as three-fifths as a person. And this just, this just bumped their population up so they right. could have more representatives. And uh, this is just, again, shows the South was, was worried about the North gaining more power. So they mollify the South with a three-fifths clause with the international slave trade. Um, and again, I think part of this is, number one, the, the country came first, the union came first. And without this, without this compromise, the South would not sign on to the Constitution. And the second part of this, I do believe, is that a lot of these leaders saw that slavery was dying anyway. So it really wasn't necessary to put all the chips on the table with an institution that was going to go away all by itself. Like I said, Washington died in 1799, and he was unable to see the cotton gin and what the cotton gin is going to do to slavery. To well, ba- right. And, and one other thing that was put in the Constitution was uh, uh, the initial slave, Fugitive Slave Act. Oh, correct. And yep. that it required uh, that escaped slaves found in free states would be caught and returned to their masters. And it also denied freed slaves uh, the right to a jury trial and other constitutional rights. It doesn't mention the word slavery in the Constitution. Uh, they're, they're people, they, you know, they use the phrase, <laughs> you know, uh, various euf- euphemisms for that. Uh, but that's what they're referring to. And just the fact that they avoid that word, you can tell that the framers understand that they are doing something in the Constitution which violates the spirit of the Declaration of Independence. Absolutely. Madison was very purposeful in trying to keep the word slave out of the Constitution. Yeah, like it's compulsory labor. Yes, yeah, so you, you know. get these workarounds. Yeah. Um, th- slavery is dying. Tobacco is becoming, is destroying the land. Um, and slaves are, be- not be- are not economically beneficial as they were. Eli Whitney is going to invent the cotton gin. And what the cotton gin is going to do, it's going to remove the seed from the cotton. Um, cotton is awesome. Uh, and but wearing cotton was extremely expensive because all those seeds had to be pulled out by hand. The cotton gin increases cotton production 40-fold. So that means for every one pound of cotton a slave could produce by hand, the cotton gin could produce 40 pounds. And guess where cotton grows? Mississippi, Louisiana, and what now we're going to call the Deep South. The tobacco plantations were in the... Uh, the Virginia Chesapeake area, the Deep South is now going to be home to the cotton plantation, and cotton explodes. And I think that sometimes we underestimate what a big deal cotton is. I, I tell people go into your closet and get rid of all synthetic fibers. Synthetic fibers are man-made stuff, stuff that's like elastic, and you know anything you put a match to is going to melt. That's a synthetic fiber. Now, what are you left with? You're left with natural fibers. The guy's riding Harleys past me. That's a na- There you go. I don't think they had those during the Civil War. No. Anyway, so... All those, you- those are not reenactors. <laughs> it destroys the, the kind of the beauty of the place to have the Harleys go by like that, at least in my opinion. But anyway, so what are you left with in your closet? You're left with natural fibers. You're going to be left with cotton, uh, some linen, uh, some wool, if you're very wealthy, some silk, all right? Now get rid of the cotton. What are you left with? Basically, wool and linen. 
So now your whole life, 365 days a year, you're spending in wools and linens. That's horrible. I'm wearing cotton underwear right now, and it's beautiful stuff. Imagine sitting in linen underwear your whole life. So, Whoa. When, oh, Whoa. God, yeah. <laughs> so the fact that cotton now becomes available to the average person when cotton never was available to the average person, this is an absolute game changer for everybody's way of life. Everyone's life is going to improve dramatically because they can wear cotton. Cotton is light. It breathes. You can wash it. It still has its same shape as when you washed it. Uh, it's just a, a, a magnificent, yeah, it's a magnificent fiber. Right. So people, we really underestimate how important cotton is, not only to us, but even, even more importantly to people who never had it before. Right. And you had a, we were talking earlier and you had a, a great stat on how much wealth is tied up in the slaves and the cotton. That well, it's incredible sure. I mean, the industries in France and, and England and, nor- the, and northern United States, the garment industries there were dependent upon cotton. The number, the number of slaves rose in concert with the increase in cotton production, increasing from around 700,000 in 1790 to around 3.2 million in 1850. By 1860, black slave labor from the American South was providing two-thirds of the world's supply of cotton. Black slave labor was the single most valuable factor of production in the United States. That was the single most important thing you could own right. in it, the United States. The only thing more valuable was the land. So pre-cotton gin to post-cotton gin, you have, huge. A, you have an increase of five-fold in slavery. For every one slave, now there's five slaves. It, it's... It's an amazing, and with that comes a change in philosophy of slaves. The change in philosophy is that with Jefferson and Washington, I apologize for the noise in the background, uh, some more loud vehicles going by. Um, The difference is with Jefferson and Washington, a lot of times we like to use the word necessary evil, that we don't like slavery, but as Jefferson said, there's really no other choice. You're born into it. Post-cotton gin, if you have this much wealth tied up in something, well, you're not a bad person. So now you start getting the positive good argument that slavery is now a good part of society. You'll have authors that will say the only true good society is a slave society. If you are Christian, you have to have a slave society. Um, George George Fitzhugh. Well, they'll mention that slavery is in the Bible. In the Bible. Uh, George Fitzhugh, an author of the time, says, What a glorious thing to man is slavery when want, misfortune, old age, debility, and sickness overtake him. Basically, that if you're a slave, it's a good thing because people will take care of you. He says the Negro slaves of the South are the happiest and in some senses the freest people in the world. The children and the aged and infirmed work not at all and yet have all the comforts and necessities of life provided for them. Um, and this is the idea that slaves are like children and the slave owner is like a father. And it's this great relationship where slaves aren't slaves. They're free because they're like children and parents are taking care of them. Um, and this is great sort of caring society. George Fitzhugh will actually has a, he wrote a book called Cannibals All. 
And one of them, one of the chapters is called Strength from Weakness. And he says, actually, the slave has more power than the master. And he gives the uh, analogy of a baby, that when the baby cries in the household, everyone is up taking care of the baby. And the baby's the weakness, but somehow it's the most powerful thing. And because a slave because a slave owner loves his slave like a mother loves a baby, so too will he take care of his slaves when they cry out in need. Well, very often, though, that babies aren't whipped by the family. No, <laughs> and they're not I mean, whipped. Right. Yeah. They're not raped by the family. Yeah, and, and, you know, the rebellions continue. You have Nad Turner and these other rebellions. The idea that the, the black people were just happy in slavery is pretty nuts if you look at the historical it's an absolute joke. Re- record. Um, but the increase in uh, the wealth of the planters and the increase in the wealth of the South makes them even more cling even more strongly to the institution of slavery. And again, you have to remember that the majority of Americans at all through this time are doing their own backbreaking labor on their own small farms. That's right. how they're getting along. And what they are is supplying a lot of what they need for themselves from their own labor. And if they're able to... Um, have a surplus, they can sell that and, and make cash money for what they need, whatever they, they need from the blacksmith, horseshoes, nails, and, and, and those kinds of things. But that's the way the average person is is living. And there is a resentment. It's not only caused on a, a moral basis, but there's a resentment of these small farmers and a fear that they're going to bring slavery to areas they would like to settle, that right. they would like to own. And, and by the same token, uh, there is a fear of the slave owners that unless they're allowed to continually expand, what way they've always feared would happen, that the North would gain more political power and take away their slaves, their property as they saw it, that would happen. And so there are all these efforts to compromise. And in 1820, you have the Missouri Compromise. Uh, they banned slavery in the Louisiana ter- ter- Territory uh, north of the 30. 30- Sixth thirty-six thirty parallel, except within the borders of the state of Missouri, which would be admitted as a slave state, but Maine would be admitted as a free state. So there's an effort to balance. There, a gag rule gets passed in Congress, and it's uh, when abolitionists begin submitting petitions about ending slavery to Congress, pro-slavery representatives passed a gag rule that prevented those petitions from being discussed. And finally, you have the Compromise of 1850, which. Well, I want to back up a little bit and okay. talk about the Compromise of 1820, just a second, Jeff, um, because slavery as it stood, it's not controversial in the sense of politics. The South has slaves, the North doesn't, and politicians really don't have to deal with it. It is only when we try to bring states into the Union that this is going to be problematic, and this is where the Compromise of 1820 comes in. We have this whole Louisiana Purchase. We're going to carve out states. Are they going to be free? Are they going to be slave? Remember, po- political parties, you have Northern uh, and Southern parties, but the same, whether you're a Whig, whether you're a Democratic Republican, there are Northern and Southern versions of those. So you don't want this to be a political issue. A rule would be great. And that's what the Missouri Compromise gives us. It simply draws a line and says, south of that line is slave, north of that line is free, except Missouri. Missouri is going to be a slave state. So but you get Maine. Yes, but you get Maine. So there's a, there's a line drawn. The gag rule that I'm glad you brought up, that basically says, um, all these petitions coming into Congress 
talking about slavery and anti-slavery, any petition coming to Congress dealing with slavery was automatically tabled. We're going to ignore it. We're not even going to talk about it. Again, politicians do not want to deal with this issue. And for basically 30 years, it works. With they, the politicians, there's Northern Whigs, there's Southern Whigs, there's Northern Democrats, Southern Democrats, they don't have to deal with the issue of slavery until the Compromise of 1850, which then we need to talk about the Mexican War with Polk. James Polk wants California. Uh, Mexico won't sell him California. Long story short, we go to war. We end up with about a half to a third of Mexico, which is basically the whole southeast, southwest of the United States. Um, This is new territory, not covered by the Missouri Compromise. So remember, this whole thing is about expansion of slavery into the territories. There's gold discovered in California in the late 1840s. So there's this huge onrush into California free labor. California wants to come into the union. But as Jeff pointed out, there is a balance in the Senate between slave states and free states. What the hell do you do with California? So in another move, Henry Clay and Daniel Webster once again step onto the national stage to usher through a compromise, the Compromise of 1850, which many historians will uh, tell you is both a failure and a success. It's a failure because it does not give us a permanent solution to slavery. It's a success in the idea that it pushes off the Civil War for another 10 years. And basically what the Compromise of 1850 is going to do, it's going to bring California in as a free state. All right. So the North gets something. The South gets a more strict fugitive slave law. Now, slave hunters can go into the North and actually pull these people back and make them slaves. And now you're going to have free blacks even in the North running for their lives, trying to escape the slave hunters. Texas is going to be forgiven debt, which is a benefit to the South. And uh, in in the District of Columbia, the slave trade will be outlawed in the District of Columbia. So both sides get something out of the compromise of 1850 but this isn't the compromise of 1820 this isn't going to be this isn't going to solidify a understanding between the north and the south and if you're looking at the first domino to fall on the road to the civil war you can probably really look to the compromise of 1850 and its inability to come up with a permanent solution to slavery um Jefferson said that. Jefferson said slavery was based, he didn't use the term volcano, but basically this is what is going to cause disunion if we can't solve this issue. Right. So I mentioned at the start, I mean, the, the politics defined as the art of the possible. Right. And what occupies Congress from the writing of the Constitution to the Civil War, more than any other issue, is slavery. Is slavery. The expansion and, of slavery. And the, yeah, That's an important part, the expansion just, yeah, of slavery. Nobody too. was talking. I mean, there were nobody. abolitionists right. in the North. There was an abolitionist press and so forth. But n- nobody was seriously talking about the abolition. No. It was how uh, the expansion of slavery uh, into the new territories, which would eventually become states. And what these people did and, and is try their very, very best to practice this art of the possible in their politics, to see how uh, they could balance this so the union could stay together. And what you see with the Compromise of 1850 is that the possibility of the union staying together 
no matter how artful you were about trying to compromise, uh, was coming to an end. Right. It's one of these great what ifs of history. What if our western border of our country would have been the Mississippi River and we never had to deal with the Compromise of 1820? We never had to deal with the Compromise of 1850. Our, our history might have been very different because the conflict is oversimplified to say the conflict was about slavery. Ultimately, yes, but more specifically, it was about expansion of slavery in the territories, which then begins us to I think about the idea of slavery as a whole, which brings us to April 12th, 1861, and the beginning of the Civil War. So, pod one, in the books for season two, I think. I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, pod two, we're going to pick up with the issue of slavery, and basically the compromise of 1850, and get right into the causes, the specific causes of the Civil War. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about day two, um, and then pod three, pod four. So thanks one and all for joining us for season two, uh, and we'll see you next time. 